a Bible near you, I encourage you um, to read through that. So um, again, reading um, from Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 1. Now, when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they had heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Tony, if you'll come, and we'll all um, pray um, for you today. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for my brother Tony, and Lord, um, let there be no distraction, let there be no um, focus on anything um, but your glory, your word, and the testimony of your church and their faithfulness to the gospel. Um, Lord, I just pray for my brother, give him strength, um, endurance, um, wisdom, and power um, as he um, preaches your word through the power of your spirit, Lord. We love you, we pray in your son Jesus Christ's name, amen. Hey everybody. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I did want to point out on this card because I'm gonna ask you to use it later. At the top section, it does say notes. It doesn't count as using it for scratch paper if you're doing notes on the sermon. I'm actually gonna ask everybody to grab one of these and write something down later. So just keep that in mind. So I I wanted to say that up front so you didn't think you were being somehow disobedient to the announcements uh, once I asked you to do that. Um, have, have any of you ever had a moment where you look at a situation one way and then in an instant it's like your eyes are open to something you, you hadn't realized and you see the world di- a little, little bit differently? Is that too vague? Some of you are like, eh, maybe, maybe. Let me give you an example. Um, when one of my children, who shall remain nameless, was in kind of that toddler stage where they were just starting to speak but didn't have very many words yet, um, my wife and I had an awful problem with them waking up in the middle of the night, running to our door and knocking, you know, wake up, I need you, I need you. They didn't really need us. They just were used to sleeping, you know, with us. And we were going through the transition of, no, 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 you really need to sleep in your own bed. And um, night after night after night, they'd wake up and they'd wake us up. And we were kind of going through the process of learning how to help them to, to put themselves to sleep, to comfort themselves. 
and um, and it was a little bit frustrating. Anybody here ever have a lack of sleep? You get a little bit irritable, you get a little bit grumpy. In your grogginess, maybe you're not like the nicest person in the world. And that was me on several nights. And there was one night, <clears throat> whenever about 3 a.m., um, I heard from this child, Daddy! And I'm instantly awake. My wife is instantly awake. And we kind of look at each other in the dim darkness about, no, come on, please no. Daddy! Mommy! Right? And I'm laying there becoming grumpier and grumpier in my grogginess because I wanted tonight the, to be the night. Mommy, daddy. And we, we just kind of lay there for about, about five minutes just hoping that the whimpers would turn back into sleep. And then, um, then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm half asleep, and instead of mommy or daddy, we hear a cough, and then, it's yucky! And all of a sudden, I was completely awake, because I didn't understand the situation as it actually was. So I get out of bed, and I go into the room, and I won't describe what I saw, because some of you want to go to lunch later. Um, you know, I, in one moment, my attitude towards my child was, please go back to sleep, right? Um, but I didn't have all the facts. My, my view towards the situation was wrong. And in an instant, in a moment, my eyes were open. I literally woke up, and I realized that they really needed me. In a sense, my worldview, in a very small way, my worldview on the situation was wrong and was suddenly changed. Does that make a little more sense, my question now? Have any of you had a moment where all of a sudden you suddenly realize what you thought was wrong, and now it changes the way you live, the way you act, what you're doing. The truth is, is that in the time of Paul and uh, his missionary journeys, God was kind of sweeping over the land, waking people up. People lived in their sin, Jew, Gentile alike. They lived their lives pursuing whatever it was that they pursued and, and truthfully, spiritually, many, many people were asleep. They viewed their lives as good or bad or somewhere in between, but they had no idea who God was or how much they needed him. And so God was sweeping across the world that was known in the day, waking people up from spiritual slumber. Just to give a little bit of background on the text that we have today in Acts, um, we're in the middle of what's called Paul's second missionary journey. So Paul was an apostle, someone who used to hate Christians, but was saved after he had a miraculous vision of Christ, the risen Christ, on a road while he was traveling to persecute Christians. And so he switched from being someone who hated the faith to someone who held it deeply and taught others about it. 
um, soon after his conversion, he was sent out by a church to be a missionary, to travel around from city to city to city, preaching the good news of Christ. That God had become a man, had come to earth, had redeemed a, a sinful people, and was offering eternal life. And so he's traveling. This is his second journey. He, he did one kind of loop around the Roman world, and he's sweeping out to do another loop, and he's traveling with companions, a man named Silas, Timothy, um, another man named Luke. And they had originally planned to travel kind of north from Jerusalem, if you can picture a map of the Middle East, um, to go north and then west into Turkey, what's called Asia or Asia Minor at the time. And they planned to go into the interior of Turkey and minister to the cities there and the people there. But something happened during, during that journey, and the scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit prevented Paul from kind of entering into Asia, from ministering in Asia. We don't know what that looked like. Was it that the weather got bad? Was it that he actually just received a feeling that it wasn't right every time that they tried to set out? We're not quite sure. But we're told that he was prevented from doing ministry in Asia as he had intended. And then one night, he has a vision. And this vision is of a Macedonian man, like a, an ethnically Greek man. Um, Macedonia was kind of across the sea from Turkey in what is modern-day Greece. And this Macedonian man was calling, was begging for someone to come and tell their people the good news. And so Paul received a new, uh, a new calling, and he and his, compa and his companions traveled. They left Asia Minor, the area in and around Turkey, and they went over into what is now Greece. And that's where we come into the text. I'm going to read verse 1 again. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And so whereas Paul had been prevented from ministering in Asia, he now was able to get into some synagogues in this town of Thessalonica to preach. Now, the, the city of Thessalonica at the time was a prominent Roman city. Um, and whenever I say prominent, it was one of the largest Roman cities um, in, in the known world. Um, they mimicked Rome. They wanted to be like Rome. They had a patron, they kind of had a, a patron, patronage status with the city of Rome. And so they were proud of who they were. And because of their location on a main trade route, they were booming. Um, people would travel in, sell their goods. They would ship them out of the port there to other places around the Mediterranean world. Um, people of all different religious backgrounds were there. Wealth, slaves, you name it. The place was booming, absolutely booming. And there were enough Jews in the city that there was a synagogue. Um, the Jews at one time lived primarily in the area in and around Jerusalem, Israel. But about 400 years before this, they were scattered even more fully than they had been before, kind of to the four winds. And pockets of them would form in various cities 
And there was enough population in Thessalonica that there was a Jewish synagogue. And it was Paul's pattern, uh, his regular practice, that if he entered a town that had a synagogue, that's where he started. These were Jews. These were people that were expecting a Messiah, someone to come and save them. And so if anyone in the city was going to hear the word, understand it, and believe it, they would be the ones. And so it says that he went in, and for three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And so we see him going in, and, you know, it would have been a scroll, not like a little miniature Bible. But he went in and took the scriptures, the scriptures that they knew, and he opened them up. And he said, this is who Jesus is. Can't you see it in the text? The person that I'm proclaiming to you as your Lord, here I can prove it. I can show you that he's your Lord. Verse 3, it says this. It says that, uh, that he was reasoned with them from the scriptures, comma, verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And then saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now this verse is significant because we have Paul telling them what the Messiah, what the Christ was supposed to be. Now these were, these were ethnic Jews that were proud of their heritage, that were proud of the kingdom that they had once held, that had a deep desire to no longer live dispersed among complete unbelievers, right? They had a glimpse and an idea in their mind of what it would be to live under God's king in God's place in, in kind of like perfect harmony, like the government that had no dysfunction, right? They had an idea of what that would be for them, and they longed for it. And so they looked for a Messiah, an eternal king, who would come and would overthrow Roman rule who would reestablish Jewish prominence, and who would rule the world with an iron scepter and lift them up to heights that they'd never known. But the Messiah that Paul preached wasn't that at all. Paul didn't go into the synagogue and say, hey, let me tell you about this guy named Jesus. He's encamped right now around Antioch, and he's forming an army. He's the Messiah. Follow him. He was preaching about someone who had been crucified, who, who had died. And it was a stumbling block. And so Paul had to show the Jews from the Scripture that the Messiah that they hoped for was not the kind of Messiah that they hoped for. There are several verses in the Old Testament, sections of Scripture, that Paul could have done it from, but almost surely he opened up the book of Isaiah. This is where the strongest imagery is. It makes it most clear. I'm actually going to read for us Isaiah 53. Um, the prophet Isaiah prophesied to the nation of Israel in a time when they were in exile. They didn't have a kingdom of their own. And he was foretelling when the Messiah would come 
to usher in the new kingdom. And this is a description he gives of that Messiah. I just want you to, to listen to these words about the kind of savior that the Messiah was to be. Listen to these words. I'm going to start Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carries our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our, our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Those are the stripes that you get when the whip comes across your back. All we sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, and yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide for him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Did you hear those words about the Messiah? What kind of Messiah is that? Is that the one who marches triumphant into Rome, overthrowing the legion? Right? The armies of Caesar? Acts 17 says Paul reasoned with them, explaining that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Their view of Jesus was off-center. They knew that they needed salvation from the Romans, but the, the fact that they were asleep to, that they didn't recognize, was that what they really needed was salvation from their own sin. 
They were lost. They were asleep. And they didn't know it. The type of savior that they really needed was not the one that would give them a perfect government, but who would change their hearts, who would give them spiritual life. And so once he'd argued about the nature of the Messiah, he connected the dots to Jesus. You could go down through Isaiah 53. This is where the stripes happened. This is where he was crushed. This is where he absorbed our transgressions. And this is when he was raised. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And so that was his message to the people. And we get the result of his preaching in the next verse. It says, and some of them were persuaded, verse 4. And they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. And so some of the Jewish men in the synagogue were persuaded. Um, we don't get the idea that it was very many, but there were a few. There were some. But even though most of the Jews rejected the message... A great many, it says, of the devout Greeks believed. And so surrounding the synagogue would have not only been a community of Jewish people, but there would have been a community of Greeks who were, who were often called God-fearers. Some of them may be in the process of becoming um, proselytes themselves. People who, who weren't born as a part of God's nation, you know, like the ethnic group of Israel, but who knew he was God and worshipped him. They would have kind of been the buffer around the Jewish community that helped give the, the Jewish community impact in the city and the ability to trade. It says many of them heard the message and they believed. And then it says, and not a, not a few of the, the leading women. So we have this picture of the ones who should have been the quickest to respond to the gospel message. Um, so kind of think of the heads of household, the Jewish men who were like the ones leading the Jewish community in the city, the ones who had the responsibility to spiritually lead the people in their midst. They didn't really convert, very many of them, but the people who didn't have the responsibility did. Leading women in the community, we're not sure if they were Jewish or not. The Greeks that were held on the outside that weren't even allowed to, to sit in the midst of the synagogue believed. And so we see God not only turn uh, the idea of what a Messiah is on its head, um, but also we see the community of God in Thessalonica kind of turned on its head. The least become the ones who lead. Verse 5, how did the Jews take this? It says, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set, a, they, they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out into the crowd. 
And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And so these men, who had enjoyed such influence over all these Greek worshipers, and who enjoyed uh, the influence of all these prominent and, and most likely wealthy women in the city, suddenly lost the people that thought they were so great. And they were angry. They were jealous uh, to the point that they whipped up a mob. Um, they were losing their positions of, of, of power. And they 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 go to the governor and they they say, these men are turning the world upside down, right? Um, it was actually the truth. The world was being turned upside down by the gospel. They just couldn't see it for the good that it was. And notice that at the end of verse seven, what did it is? What did they say about the king? These people, they're acting out against the decrees of Caesar. So these men who were so expectantly awaiting that man to come and overthrow Caesar, whenever the day finally came, who did they pick? They rejected the Messiah in favor of the king that they professed to hate. Verse 8. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And so the governing authorities take money from this man named Jason. Um, that's a Greek name. He's probably one of the Greek God-fearers that converted and who had invited Paul into his house. And, uh, and things are dangerous for Paul and Silas particularly. And so the new converts in the city of Thessalonica, even though they're babies in the faith, they've only had a few weeks to learn about this Messiah, they send Paul and Silas away in the middle of the night um, so that they wouldn't be killed. And Paul and Silas, for their part, go to the next city of Berea after having survived a riot. And what did they do? Did you catch it? They went right into the next synagogue and started over in the city of Berea. God had called them into Macedonia. And even though the first city uh, they ministered in uh, about ended up in their death, they kept on following their calling. And so this is the background of the church in Thessalonica. Um, Paul was with them three weeks, maybe a little bit longer, depending on how long it took the mob to convince the authorities to, to, to action. They're there for just a little bit, and then they're off. Um, the, book of Thessalonica, uh, of the book of the Thessalonians, the first Thessalonians, the one that we're going to be going through, was written to this very young church a couple stops down the road. So Paul goes into Berea, 
um, into Philippi at one point. He goes to Athens, and then he ends up in the city of Corinth. He spends a couple of years in Corinth, and he starts realizing, I should write back (laughs) to those churches that I didn't spend very long in because of the reports that he had heard. So how do we apply this? Um, Truthfully, we wanted to go through this text largely to give us a background. As we dig into the teaching that Paul gives the Thessalonians, we want to know who are these people? What is their history? In a lot of ways, they look like a very young church. Probably not older than us as a congregation. There are people that have received very little instruction who believed the gospel, who were awakened by Christ, who had their world turned upside down, but then were given very little to work with afterwards. And so how do we apply this? How do we get ready for the future? Um, here's, Here's a truth. God is still waking people up. Right? He's still turning the world upside down. The gospel is still working. It's still moving forward. It's changed many of you, and it'll continue to change many of you. The Messiah that suffered for the sins of the people, our sins, and he's changing us from the inside out. So are we awake? Do we see our own needs? Do we see the mess of sin that we've kind of been asleep in? How do we move forward as Christians? So you guys have those little pieces of paper next to you? I want you to write down in shorthand a few questions. This is your application this week. This is homework. I don't normally like to give this kind of homework, but this is serious. I want you guys to actually think about these. I'm going to give you um, four questions that I want you to think about this week, that I want you to reflect on this week. Um, And as we go through the book of Thessalonians, I think maybe really examine yourself and see where you are. So here's the first question. You ready? What are the things in life that make me the happiest? What is it that brings me joy? What makes me the most happy in life? Something along those lines. That's the first question. What makes me most happy in life? All right. Second question. Where do I love to spend my time? Um, Whenever I'm at work, what do I wish that I could be doing? Right? You know, bumper stickers say, rather be fishing. Fill in that blank. What would I rather be doing? You know, what are the things that I love to spend my time doing that I invest my time in? Third question, what am I hoping will happen in my life this year? You know, come, come next May, you know, next time you celebrate Cinco de Mayo or Star Wars Day, you know, May the 4th, what is it that you hope happens? What are you longing for this year?
And then the fourth question is this. What would the answers to all of those questions look like if I was more spiritually awake? If God could shake me out of spiritual drowsiness more and more, would the answers to those questions change? Would it affect those answers? What would the answers to those questions look like if I was more spiritually awake? The book of 1 Thessalonians is an intensely practical book in many ways, and it deals with these kind of core questions of spiritual identity. And this week, I mainly just want us to spend our times um, preparing our hearts for what God may teach us in the book. All right? So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. We want to thank you that you are willing to turn the world upside down. Um, we want to thank you that Christ came not as a harsh dictator to raise one ethnic group over another, but rather came as a merciful servant willing to suffer and die for our sins. Lord, none of us in this room would have a hope under a different kind of Savior. But you loved us so much that you gave us exactly what we needed. Give us hearts to recognize who Christ is, hearts to examine ourselves. Lord, we ask that in the coming months that you would help us to invest in spiritual things, help us to pursue you more fervently. Lord, we're still sinful. Help us to repent of our sins, to continue to turn to your gospel, to be transformed by you, to become more like you. Lord, change our hopes, change our dreams. We pray this in Jesus' name.